Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. An occupation on the steps of the U.S. Capitol leads to a victory for millions of families facing the threat of eviction during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ain't gonna let nobody put me out, put me out, put me out. Ain't gonna let nobody put me out. I'm gonna keep on walking, come on, you keep on talking. Marching up the freedom way, put a there. And while the Russiagate hoax still bubbles up among Hillary Democrats and corporate media, an actual multi-million dollar campaign by pro-Israel lobbyists interfering in Nina Turner's bid for a congressional seat is ignored. We have hard evidence of Israel's impact, very strong impact on this race, and yet no one says a word. And it's just, it's outrageous, really. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum an occupation on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to extend the moratorium on evictions during the COVID-19 pandemic ended in victory this week. For five days and four nights, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri and others slept outside. And the Biden administration did what it said that it could not do, and that is extend a limited eviction moratorium in areas impacted by the new Delta variant of the coronavirus. And this moratorium apparently covers 90% of the population, At the Capitol, Bush, who once lived in her car with her two children, told on the ground about her motivation for this action. We understand that no matter what the situation is, once we are out of this pandemic, that the fallout from this pandemic can be long and in so many different areas that we're not even looking at right now. So working on looking at just uh, as a whole, what all we need to tackle and what we need to work on. So that's one reason why I just introduced the Unhoused Bill of Rights. And one thing that is with this resolution is it says that we want to end homelessness by 2025 with a $200 billion investment, $140 billion of that is to build the homes. So as we're tackling this issue and we're tackling it on so many sides, we also have to have money to be able to build our own. We also have to have money to be able to put people in adequate housing. We have people right now, we're, they have homes, but especially in black and brown communities and in in some black communities probably uh, more so that are at least in my community anyway the homes should not even be habitable you know and so we're talking about still have lead and asbestos in those homes you know and so because we see it in the fact that like in some areas black children are 10 times as likely to go to the hospital for asthma than than white children and 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 so on so we can connect we need to look at debt cancellation 
we need to look at getting the money to be able to build more to make sure that people actually have places to go and then making sure that we're correcting the issue of people living in um, homes that shouldn't be uh, habitable. Okay, and then my last question is, in your time that you've been in Congress, you know, that's a really ambitious legislation. And what are your thoughts about the challenges of passing such ambitious legislation, uh, not only in the House, but in the overall Congress? Yeah, I mean, it's a resolution. You came here as an activist, so I know that you're used to things happening quicker or being able to make change, you know, on a local level in a different pace. So that's that's why I'm asking. Yeah, well, I guess it's a little one thing about it, though, because I came from the Ferguson movement where there wasn't where there was not this idea of like this is what activism is and you have to meet these marks for it to be considered activism. And so for us, the work that we did was not short. It was long. We protested more than 400 days and we didn't still didn't see any change. So but what I did see was how when you're diligent and you're persistent, you can start to chip away at these things and you get to start to see some change. And so for me, with this resolution, this resolution is just a framework for people, for, for us to be able to build legislation from. And it has, it's like 25 key points about what we need to see happen. And so that's what this is. This is about a bigger, a broader conversation on the fact that we have so many needs. We have so many needs that aren't being addressed because we don't want to address poverty head on. We don't want to uh, tackle poverty the way that we need to tackle poverty. And this is what this is doing. Now, this moratorium extension is also facing legal challenges and states are being urged to distribute the billions of dollars already allocated for renters and small landlords in the COVID relief legislation passed earlier this year. I'll have more on the eviction moratorium and the housing crisis after headlines. On the climate crisis front, the entire small town of Greenville, California, was destroyed on Thursday by the enormous Dixie wildfire, which has already consumed more than 300,000 acres. Also, a new study published in the journal Nature Climate Change warns that the Gulf Stream system, a crucial Atlantic Ocean current, could collapse, severely disrupting vital weather patterns that sustain agriculture and global ecosystems. The organization 350 Tacoma tweeted in response, saying that the collapse would be a, quote, unimaginably catastrophic and irreversible impact of fossil fuel caused climate breakdown. Scientists say we cannot allow this to happen. People in power stand in our way, end quote. And in Northern Minnesota, indigenous leaders mounting a resistance to stop the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline are appealing to all allies to join them at one of the resistance camp sites and to speak out to the world about their fight against the pipeline, which would carry 760,000 barrels of tar sands oil every day from Alberta, Canada to Wisconsin, illegally crossing treaty lands and endangering the headwaters of the Mississippi River and Lake Superior, as well as 800 wetlands. Protesters were shot this week with rubber bullets by police that are being paid by a fund set up by the Enbridge Corporation. Those interested in getting involved in the battle to stop Line 3 are encouraged to follow the Lakota People's Law Project and Ginny Collective on social media. And that collective is spelled G-I-N-I-W, collective on social media, and or sign the petition to President Biden at action.lakotalaw.org forward slash 
Stop Line 3. Other organizations involved include Honor the Earth and the Indigenous Environmental Network. In Black Lives Matter and policing news, two Aurora, Colorado police officers, John Halbert and Francine Martinez, have been arrested in connection with a brutal assault on 29-year-old Kyle Vincent on July 23rd. In Kaufman County, Texas, Connor Martin, a sheriff's deputy, is on administrative leave pending an investigation after video of him lying on top of a crying black teenager went viral as she cried out and said, I can't breathe. The 18-year-old girl, Nakia Trigg, was walking home when someone called the police saying that she was trying to jump in front of car traffic. Here in the D.C. area, the Archie Elliott III Coalition for Justice is rallying Monday, August 9th, 1130 a.m. at the Prince George's County Courthouse on Main Street in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. The coalition named for a young black man who died in the custody of Prince George's County Police in 1993 said that they are rallying to demand accountability for policing in the county and to demand accountability from county officials. For more information, call 240-305-2921. And finally, in culture and media, Twitter has announced that it will work with Reuters and the Associated Press to censor supposed misinformation on the platform while actively promoting news stories that they deem to be credible. As our friends at the Gray Zone pointed out, both the AP and Reuters media outlets are reliable mouthpieces of Western governments, particularly for propaganda for wars and attacks on the global South. Documents leaked this year to the Gray Zone revealed that Reuters works hand-in-hand with the British government on shaping news coverage of Russia. And finally, Richard Trumpka, head of the AFL-CIO labor union, died of a heart attack Thursday at the age of 72. And special programs and various remembrances are still pouring in for Black Agenda Report editor Glenn Ford, who died of cancer July 28th at the age of 71. The writer and activist Ajamu Baraka, a friend and longtime bar editor with Ford, posted online this week, quote, For Glenn, we will continue to tell the truth, to engage without fear in the ideological battle for our people, and to build the structures that will lead us to the new world we must build. Glenn Ford, Presente. End quote. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
My name is Nigel Johnson. I'm from Florida, and I'm a student here at Howard University. I came out here yesterday after I saw a post from Representative Cory Bush and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez explaining what happened with the eviction moratorium expiring uh, this morning at midnight. Um, I found it to be reprehensible that the House went on a seven-week recess before extending the moratorium, so I came back here to join in them and their demands for the House to reconvene to extend the moratorium. Oh, okay. I guess the belief is that Speaker Pelosi, she tried to get this passed through unanimous consent right before the uh, moratorium was to expire, but a Republican objected. But the reason she did it by unanimous consent is because she knew at the time she didn't have the votes. So it's a handful of conservative Democrats that are keeping the House from coming back because Speaker Pelosi doesn't want to have a vote if she knows that she's going to lose. But I think whoever is opposed to this should be brave enough to put their name next to their no to let people know where they stand because it's wrong to send seven to 11 million people at one time into eviction proceedings. Again, I'm from Florida, so in Pinellas County today, there have already been 4,500 uh, eviction orders signed by judges saying uh, as soon as this has expired that these people can go through with their evictions. So it's already impacting families across wow. the country. okay. So you keep up with things. You sound like a political science student. <laughs> I am. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Nalini Stamp, and I'm the Director of Strategy and Partnerships for the Working Families Party. I am here because last night at midnight, the eviction moratorium was dropped because they didn't extend it. They being the White House, Congress, you name it at this point. And we were compelled by the call from Congresswoman Cori Bush to be out here to demand that either the House reconvene or the Senate pass an extension of the eviction moratorium. And it's been really beautiful to watch people just coming out here. People and being, coming out, yeah. I'm just wondering, is it is it too late for some families? I mean, what can happen if this this goes through? How quickly can relief happen? Is it too late? Here's the thing. We've had a housing crisis in this country for a long time. So it's been too late for so much inaction to happen at the federal level. And so I would just say that in general. Like we, you know, every eviction that's happened that will happen is a policy failure. Ayanna Presley said that the other day and we resonate with that. There is ability to, there have been a lot of evictions signed, but it takes a process to actually be evicted from your home. So I am hoping that if there is action now, that it would nullify those eviction notices that have gone out. And then families do not have to have that burden on their heads. But families are going to be having that burden unless Congress does the necessary steps to make sure the states are providing the relief that already went out, giving more relief. So this doesn't happen for whatever time and making sure that the eviction moratorium is extended until we we really have a hold on this pandemic. And the reality is because it is a new, a growing, a changing virus. Right. We have a Delta variant, Gamma variant. We can't actually say that this is going to be all good until we have a full like science has a full handle on what's going on. And so I believe just like a lot of other countries that said we're just doing it for two years, just flat out. Right. right. It's like that's the kind of action that we need because we do not know what this virus. We still know little about it. Right. So also talk to me about moratorium versus other remedies, because yeah. earlier this year, I know we covered a lot of actions here and around the country around cancel the rents. Yep. So in other words, when people have a moratorium, they still owe the money. 
and there's yeah. not necessarily the yeah. money there to pay it once the moratorium goes away. So what's your position on that? And have you seen any movement in Congress to have that type of relief? Yeah. So we endorsed cancel rent legislation. Ilhan Omar, Representative Ilhan Omar was the person who was really advocating for that. We also advocated and put out a full-page ad with a bunch of different organizations to cancel the rent debt. Because you can do two things. You can cancel the rent debt and make sure that the like small landlords and all that stuff are good, right? Provide that relief, and then the people don't owe. So, and then there's a moratorium, right? Cancel the rent debt accrued, or you can cancel the rent, which is just like no more rent needing to be paid until it's over. And so there's actually multiple solutions that community organizations, that organizations like, you know, um, People's Action and Right to the City and Center for Popular Democracy Action have put out there time and time again with the backing of representatives like Ilhan Omar, representatives like Cory Bush and Ayanna Presley who have been advocating this for a long time. So Congress has actually seen a bunch of different proposals. And this is why it's really a, it's an egregious move to me that this has happened because so many people have been saying it for a year renters landlords like people have been saying something needs to be done and here are a bunch of different options so choose one right okay my name is nalini stamp and i'm the director of strategy and partnerships for the working families party okay thank you thank you my name is andrew lozano from california but i live in dc Oh, okay. (laughs) So why'd you come out today, and have you been here more than one day? So I was out here last night for the rally, and then I came back today in the afternoon. And I came out um, because just to support, you know, the Congresswoman Cori Bush and the other members of Congress and and all the individuals out here calling for our government to act in order to keep people housed, Um, mostly because what's, you know, what's happening is wrong, and everybody should be infuriated by it, whether or not it impacts you directly or not. Homelessness, and especially in this case, but in general, is a policy choice. This is something that we've been—it's—we've seen it coming. You know, our government, our leaders, people who are supposed to be our leaders, um, are actively choosing to abandon people and leave them to fend for themselves, even though, you know, in this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, what's happening right now is not the fault of the hardworking people who are now subject to being evicted from their homes. Mm-hmm. We were taking over abandoned houses because it is immoral and wrong to have more abandoned housing in this country than homeless people. Yes, ma'am. To have the average age of a homeless person as nine years old. Shame. Shame. To throw out more food than it takes to feed everybody. To have the world made of two-thirds water, and yet millions of families are losing their water. This is immoral, and it's wrong, and it's going to take people like here standing up and so you should know that people are watching I think you do but that's what it's going to take for us to stand up and say it does not have to be this way this is not as good as it gets yeah yeah what does it mean to say you're the richest country in the world if nearly half of your people are poor or one small emergency away from poverty. And this is not about feeling bad for some people over there that have it hard. This is in the very fabric of our society. And it's wrong, but it's only when those that are most impacted by that injustice band together with people from all walks of life and build a movement powerful enough to, in the words of Dr. King, make the powers that be say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. Mm -hmm. 
We've heard a lot of no lately. No, we can't extend unemployment. No, we can't expand health care. No, we can't make utilities free. No, we can't cancel rent. Well, what we need is a powerful movement of people that includes everybody right here saying, well, we're going to make you. And keep on coming back and coming back and coming back. Change does not happen overnight. If we look at history, we are still in the early years of a movement that will be powerful enough to be able to make it right, transform from the bottom. But we are in those early years. And there are people coming forward. And there is something breaking through. I'm the director of something called the Kairos Center. And Kairos is a word, it's a Greek word, it's a biblical word, and it's, it's a word for time. There's chronos time, it's chronological, it goes day after day after day. But then there's something called the Kairos. And Kairos is when the old is breaking down, when injustice has just had its way, and something new is coming through. Movements are being born. Well, it's amazing that there are people all over this nation, all over this world, including yourselves, including the Congresswoman, the squad, the folks that have come out here, and, and all of you, at the same time as folks are making sure we hear about the climate crisis, at the same time that folks are fighting for voting rights, because all of these issues are connected. And, and indeed, when we see that they're connected and we get together, we have a saying in our work that, again, when the rejected get together, when those who have been evicted and pushed out and told that they're not good enough and blamed for poverty and immigration issues and all kinds of stuff, when those folks get together, that's a starting of being able to end these injustices forever and that's what I see here I see a beautiful fusion of different people that are convicted committed and prepared to keep on marching ain't nobody gonna the same forces that have tried to evict an election See. on January 6th. And the same forces that are trying to evict your votes because 56 million people this past election used voting procedures other than on election day. And they know if you keep voting, things change because Biden didn't win by 40,000 votes. He won the popular vote by 7 million, but he only won the, the electoral college by 40,000 votes cumulative in three, three. So if they could evict just 0.2% in some places. So the same forces that tried to evict the constitutional election, tried to, tried to evict your votes, are now trying to evict your bodies. And you know what your word has to be? Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around.
Turn me around, turn me around, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on a walking, I keep on a talking, marching up the freedom way. Let me change it up for you. Ain't gonna let nobody put me out, put me out. Come on, man. That was the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking at the U.S. Capitol on Sunday, August 1st, in support of the sit-in and occupation to extend the moratorium on evictions. And he spoke there in support of Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, who who actually led the charge and created that action, which was so victorious. 202-588-9739, 202-588-9739. I want to hear from my people in Southeast D.C., Southwest D.C., Northeast D.C., and Northwest D.C. I want to hear from Silver Spring, College Park, Woodbridge, Sherlington, Hyattsville, Mount Rainier. I want to hear from Baltimore. I want to hear from Columbia, Maryland, and Bowie, Annapolis. If you want to help us, if you listen in, please help me reach my goal, 202-588-9739, or pledge online at wpfwfm.org. I should mention that I do have a special thank you gift on uh, available for the show. And if you're a regular listener and you've been collecting Gerald Horn's books, I have uh, his latest book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, based upon exhaustive research and court records, memoirs, the files of the New York State Athletic Commissions, and related bodies from Nevada to New Jersey, you know how Gerald Horn does very, very detailed and extensively researched book, right? That's what I'm trying to say. That is more about the book I have to offer in addition to the masks and other things that you can get as thank you gifts. The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. You may know someone who would love that as a gift, you know, and we have it here for you just on On the Ground. 202-588-9739, WPFWFM.org. Click the red Donate Now button. If you're not near the phone or the computer and you want to pledge later, just make sure you tell the operator you're pledging for On the Ground and make sure or make sure you choose On the Ground from the drop-down menu on the website. 202-588-9739. 
202-588-9739. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now I'm joined by Fernando Abarca, a national field organizer at Right to the City Alliance, a national organization that works to halt displacement, expand affordable housing, and create just, sustainable cities. He joins us from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Fernando. Thank you for having me. Well, after five days and four nights of Representative Cori Bush occupying the steps of the U.S. Capitol, after the Biden administration said that it could not extend the CDC moratorium on evictions, the administration wound up creating this limited moratorium in areas impacted by the new Delta variant of the coronavirus. And this moratorium apparently covers 90% of the population. So, Fernando, this is a victory, but I've spoken to so many people working around housing who say that it's not nearly enough. And I want to get your take on the situation now and tell us what you saw in terms of the original moratorium expiring and what kind of impact that had already. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Some of the things that for sure that that you hear about are evictions happening across the country. And unfortunately, that's not anything new. That's something that even prior to the pandemic was going on. Even through the pandemic, you know, in some states, we've seen folks still getting evicted and still getting court orders and still having to show up to court. And the reality situation is that, you know, it's patchwork. And this extension of two months is also patchwork. You know, I think there's a lot of confusion by folks in terms of where they can go and get support if there even is support, right? And it just creates a lot of confusion and and it puts people in, in really precarious situations where, you know, they don't know they're going to be able to stay home the following month or the following month, right? And we continue to get these extensions, but a moratorium is, is also not going to solve our housing crisis, unfortunately. Right. So even when the moratorium is over, no money is going to magically appear for people to pay the back rent. <laughs> and I guess one of the things I, I understand from people here in Washington is that they believe this additional moratorium will allow the states and cities or that received funds to distribute to renters and to small landlords that this will give an opportunity for these funds to be distributed. But I'm wondering if really the the states just don't really have the capacity to 
basically create a new program and distribute these funds, just like they had such trouble paying unemployment. Right. No, and I think, you know, some of the things that, you know, that you see on the news in terms of like the numbers being reported in terms of how much of that federal aid has actually been able to get to tenants, you know, I, you know, I, I've been reading a couple of things that range anywhere from six to 12%, right? And that's not nearly enough, right? And, and there's a lot of, again, to the point about confusion and folks not knowing, you know, what support is out there. This is, this is part of the problem. You know, there's a lot of barriers that have been put into place and, and, and at this moment, the most urgent thing, the most important thing is keeping people housed. And in order to do that, we need to give them funding directly, you know, make funds directly available to folks that absolutely need it with no red tape, no gimmicks. You create all these hurdles that people have to go through it and they're already worried about being in a housing crisis and, and housing instability, that the least we can do is provide them the funds directly to be able to pay their rent and to pay their bills as well, because utilities is also a part of it. And that's the immediate. But in terms of the long term, you know, we can't, again, <laughs> the way that the system is set up, it's not set up for people to be supported and to be able to maintain control over their housing situation. And we really need to look at alternatives and support those alternatives and uplift those alternatives, such as decommodifying land and supporting community land trusts and cooperatives and tenants first option to purchase so that folks are able to finally take control of their livelihood and their communities. We've seen it time and time again that financial institutions, banks, uh, you know, the 2008 crisis and private equity and, and hedge funds, you know, you know, they made a killing in the market, you know, being able to, to purchase homes that were foreclosed on. And we're right on track to, to having another 2008 crisis if we don't do something about making sure that people are protected and are able to stay home. I know that Los Angeles has a tremendous issue with the unhoused population. And I, I even think that I saw an article not too long ago that a judge had ordered the city or the county to house the, the unhoused population and gave them a deadline. Yes, that was Judge Carter, I believe. And then recently in Los Angeles as well, the, the bill is 41.18 that was passed this past week here in Los Angeles, criminalizing the homeless, basically giving you know people warnings that they can't sleep on sidewalks, they can't sleep on bus stops, you know that they have to seek shelter. And I think the first couple of times it's a warning and then it actually becomes, you know, folks can be fined for that. And this is a huge, huge problem. Shelters can only do so much. And even then, there's not enough shelters to give protection to houseless folks in Los Angeles currently. And on top of that, you know, you're going to criminalize them for not seeking shelter. And again, the solution is always going to be housing. We need to be able to give people access to more homes. And what's scary about the situation, you know, we want to focus on Los Angeles, you know, is the fact that we have a large houseless population now. And if we don't do something about folks that are in a really tough financial situation that are on the verge of losing their housing because they owe thousands of dollars in back rent, you know, it's going to create a a houseless situation that we can't even imagine here in in Los Angeles. But this isn't specific to Los Angeles. This is a huge problem across the nation, right? In terms of the proportions of folks that could potentially be out on the street without a home. It's twofold. We have to think about the amount of money that people owe, and, and that has to be canceled. That has to be canceled. And we also have to be future thinking that as these moratoriums also get extended, uh, and this situation has been extended to October, you know, that that also be forgiven as well. 
And again, we have to think about other alternative solutions because the way that things are set up, it doesn't benefit the people who have been in these communities for years, right? Who lived in a community for 30 plus years. And a bank mm-hmm. that comes in and, you know, they're not, they're looking at the bottom line and the profit, right? They're not looking at the importance of being able to keep a family housed. Right. You know, a lot of the, the, I guess, outrage that I heard from people, from people at the Capitol was about the fact that the House of Representatives, which is, you know, led by Democrats or, you know, yeah, led by Democrats, opted to go on vacation before this was taken care of. Yeah, totally. I think the word that stands out to me is disheartening, right? You know, that people are really struggling out here. And and again, even a moratorium, like a bulletproof moratorium that guarantees folks will not be evicted, right? In this moment in time, falls short of what we, of, of what we actually need, right? Because you know, we can have the moratorium, but again, once the moratorium is uplifted, you know, if we don't have guarantees that folks will have support to pay the back rent and the future, right? We're talking about some of these folks still don't have jobs, right? Um, right. And we also need to be thinking about, you know, the recovery phase of this as well. We also, I mean, it's also disheartening because there's people out here that are risking their lives at work that they don't want to be there at work. If they, if, you know, if you give some folks, if you give them the choice, they, of course not, right? They would rather be home and, and protect their families, but they have to go out there, you know, and they have to do, you know, they have to labor in order to make money in order to pay off the rent, you know, and many folks are also having to borrow money from other family members as well, right? Um, so, right. I mean, there's all these layers and there's not a, it's, and it's just really unfortunate that, that, you know, the federal government along with local governments, some local governments that are that are meant to protect and help folks and these really I mean it's a global pandemic, right? Like if this is this is the like moment when these institutions need to really stand up for the people and and unfortunately we still see the political games, we see the political divides, right? We see the factions and we see the distractions and, and again the priority at the end of the day should simply be about keeping people housed supporting them through this bad time and then really thinking through about, again, like what is the future and and, and what's going to be different because it's unsustainable that that unfortunately housing is is marketed in in the speculative market. Ultimately, like when you just talk about that large of a population being unhoused uh, here in DC, I mean, right in the shadow of the Capitol, as I was riding to cover the protest, you know, I, I drove past, uh, a little triangle of park that had tents in in it and people were living in the tents, you know? So uh, it's always been that way in DC, you know, people sleeping on grates right here in the nation's Mm -hmm. capital where, you know, these kinds of laws and these kind of considerations should be made. And it just tells me that even though we say housing is a human right, Mm -hmm. it's just obvious that lawmakers and the system doesn't see it as a right. 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 Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, we're, we're commodifying land and housing. Right. And, and until we completely decommodify it, you know, and, and, and take away the speculative nature of housing, we can say that people have autonomy and control over over their homes. Right. And over their communities. When you invest years in a community, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you could be kicked out from one moment to the next. That's not just. <laughs> and it's not yeah. fair as well. 
All right. Okay. Well, uh, I hope that we can stay in touch with you as the weeks go on and the months go on just to get some perspective from Los Angeles, uh, about decisions made here in Washington, D.C. I've been speaking to Fernando Abarca, a national field organizer at Right to the City Alliance. Thank you for joining me today, Fernando. Thank you so much. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And I'm joined by journalist John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of several books and essays, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, the apartheid state of Israel is a running thread through a few stories this week. Progressives are smarting from the loss by Nina Turner in her race to fill the Cleveland, Ohio seat vacated by Marsha Fudge, who was tapped to head the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the Biden administration. And her opponent, Chantel Brown, was backed by the full weight of the Democratic establishment, including James Clyburn, Hillary Clinton, and... Our friends at Mondo Weiss remind us that while Israel was seldom mentioned in mainstream coverage, Brown was also endorsed by a number of pro-Israel lobbying groups that spent millions of dollars on the race. And one of these groups includes the Democratic Majority for Israel, which spent a reported $1.9 million, meaning that they reported almost $2 million trying to stop Turner and we don't know how much more was actually spent by them or other folks. So my first thought is that wasn't there this running scandal for more than three years, or I don't know what you would call it, a fake media scandal. It turned out to be a hoax about Russiagate, right. Russia interfering in the U.S. elections. And uh, didn't some, I don't know, if you, the cyber ninjas just looking at ballots in Arizona to see if they could detect bamboo fibers from China that were supposedly inserted into the ballots or that supposedly show that the ballots really were imported from China to affect the 2020 presidential race. So we have this kind of going on and these things that are really wind up being jokes or a hoax at best, but we have actual money dollars spent here <laughs> Uh, people <laughs> bragging about it in to newspapers, to reporters. So in that same article in Mondo Weiss, the Jewish Democratic Council of America, which I suppose gave money to the race, said that Jewish voters made the critical difference in the race, with Jews turning out at nearly double the rate of other voters in the district and voting largely for Brown on the basis of quote-unquote Jewish values, which include support for Israel. And so while Nina Turner has always stood up for Palestinian rights, uh, pointing out the apartheid state of Israel's practices there, the, the ethnic cleansing, the murder, the just what's happening in Israel, Chantel Brown disparaged the Democratic line, uh, support for Israel. Unlike Nina Turner, she did not stand up for Medicare for All or the Green New Deal 
or, you know, student loan forgiveness or any of the progressive things that the progressive wing of the party has been standing up for. So what's your take? The same as yours, Esther. I I just find it, uh, you know, when I first heard about this and the the ludicrous amounts of money that the the the, the super PACs or uh, super PACs that are associated with Israel spent on this race uh, to get Chantel Brown across the finish line first. And yet, you know, we're still talking, or at least I believe there are still these pundits and people in the media who still talk about Russia's influence in the 2016 election, of which, of which there's no evidence. We have hard evidence of Israel's impact, very strong impact on this race. And yet no one says a word. And it's just, it's outrageous, really, you know. But but I will say this, though. They were able to influence enough Jewish voters to get enough Jewish voters to the polls to give this election by a pretty comfortable margin to Brown. I have a question, though, and this is only a question. I don't know. But I suspect that part of the reason that Nina Turner couldn't overcome these Israel super PACs, Israeli super PACs, uh, exorbitant spending is that when she was a state lawmaker, she was a fierce proponent of charter schools. And I'm not suggesting that blacks turned on her and voted for Chantel Brown. It's a heavily black district. But I wonder, and it's only a question, but I wonder if that didn't dampen the enthusiasm in the black community for uh, Nina Turner's campaign. I don't know that, but you know, I know that you know education is an issue that the media rarely covers, but that Blacks are heavily invested in for obvious reasons. And that's the kind of thing that could really kind of hurt her. People have tend to have long memories when it comes to that. I don't know, but I wonder. But having said that, though, I believe this is just for a year until the midterm election, and then they'll have to replay it again. And so if I was an advisor to Nina Turner, which I'm most definitely not, I would tell her just, you know, keep your powder dry because she's going to get another shot at this. And my guess is that after a year of her pro-Israel, pro-corporate, pro-DNC, pro-Hillary Clinton, pro-Joe Biden policies, that the election result would be very different in a year from now if Nina Turner runs again against this woman. Uh, She's clearly just another one of these sort of neoliberal Negroes who the Democratic Party has made a turned into an art form in terms of propping these people up to sort of parrot white supremacy, to parrot Zionism, and to parrot all of these policies that are anathema to the Black community and to the Black base of the Democratic Party. Right. So to get 44% of the vote is actually pretty good given the the amount of firepower against her. But what you just said really resonates for me because the race to me it was almost symbolic of this time period we're living in where you see all the people who uh, are, are willing to, you know, bow at the feet of the imperialist project, bow at the feet of, like you said, white supremacy, bow at the feet of all these forces that we know are oppressing us. If they are willing to do that, they will get over. Right. And it has a lot to do with people of our generation who had that choice to make, right? Yes, and, yes. And I see that very clearly in the paths of these two women or or what how they choose to present themselves to the world and what they choose to stand up and profess, right? Because yes. all of us at, at this point in the, the empire's decline, all of us are being made to profess something, all right? 
uh, are you going to be with us? You know, like what did George Bush say? You know, like are you either you're are with you us for, you're the, or you're is, against yeah. us? Right? Is, yes, right. Or, right. or, the, or as the rappers say, who you with? Right. That's the question that's sort of posed to all of right. us. Who you with? You know, right, right. <laughs> and they want to make it as difficult as possible. They want to make it very difficult for the people who don't want to stand up and profess and to be with them. You know, as they. Uh, continue to commit ethnic cleansing in Palestine and 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 dispossess people, yet want to blame China for doing it, right? Right. As they want right. to choke off Cuba and choke off Venezuela, but then claim that Russia is practicing some type of expansionist nationalism in Ukraine or whatever, you know? Right, right. So we're living through all these stark contradictions and hypocrisies. After I was just having this conversation earlier with a friend, the, the thing is, they have no counter arguments anymore. The, this, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, I'd say this neoliberal project that started around 40, 45 years ago is clearly a failure. The pandemic shows it. You, a privatized economy with no public health resources cannot handle a public health crisis. And so, you know, increasingly they just have no arguments anymore. This is a failure. Everyone sees it. Not very many people know the answer, right? You've got the January 6th mob that attacks the Capitol in this sort of sort of this desperate bid to maintain white supremacy. You've got, you know, the people like the Congressional Black Caucus and James Clyburn who want to basically uh, help prop up white supremacy and the Clintons and the DNC's pro-corporatist policies. But the people writ large understand this is a failure. America has failed and you can't keep it together at this point, right? its collapse is imminent. That's very real. And so in some ways, I think this election between Nina Turner and Chantel Brown is representative of that. Chantel Brown's not going to be able to put her finger in the dike and keep that dam from overflowing. She's just not, right? And, and I don't know if Nina Turner is going to be able to, to swoop in and be the hero either, right? But I do know that what happened in Ohio is not representative of the democratic will of the people of that district in, in Ohio. I do know that. Well, it's not being mentioned that Ohio had a open primary and Republicans were able to vote in this primary to come in and vote against her. Oh, I did not know that. I did not know that. That's quiet. <laughs> so, yeah, I did so not when know you that. really, yeah, right. I only saw it in uh, a piece written by Norman Solomon uh, in common dreams. And then I'm looking again at this Mondo Weiss piece where yeah, at the intercept, Matthew Cunningham cook reported that much of the money funneled into DMFI's political action committee came from GOP donors. And this is a quote as a Democrat who has helped Democrats all over the state. We cannot condone Democrats that are accepting money associated with Trump End quote state representative Juanita Brent told the intercept Quote, how can we have someone who is the party chair and says that she's a Democrat's Democrat, but is accepting Republican money, end quote. So that is another piece oh, of wow. this that MSNBC, all these other people who are crowing over this defeat of Nina Turner, as if it signifies the same thing they tried to signify about the mayoral race in New York City, that right, you see right. what they call a moderate 
which is not a moderate that the right wing candidate (laughs) is going to win against the progressive or the left wing candidates. So that's another factor too. That's extraordinary. I I did not know that. And that's a, that's a huge factor, right? Or at least potentially. It's huge. huge I mean, do you remember that's how Cynthia McKinney? So yes. Well, so didn't Cynthia McKinney have to uh, compete in an open primary there? I don't know. I, she, I know. Or, I know that Israel played a big part in funding her opponent, her Democratic opponent. I do that's know that. Right. I know that yeah. for sure. I know that yeah. for sure. So that's another example that we can give. But in any case, that's something to watch. Nina Turner gave her a speech to concede, and she said that she's going to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. So with this added information. You know, we can talk about the funding. We can talk about the the outside funding, the Democratic Party ganging up on her and backing this neoliberal candidate. And the final thing, of course, is that Chantel Brown is supposedly under investigation for ethics violations. (laughs) And so this this person was backed in spite of, you know, so they pulled out all the stops and willing to hold their nose and, you know, shovel money her way. Uh, to keep Nina Turner from getting the seat. And it may backfire on them because they just showed a lot of people the truth. Yes, they just showed yes, a lot of people what yes, they're about. Yes. And like you said, the seat's going to come open again. And not only that, the voters in general are watching and seeing what they did. The bigger danger too, I think, is that, you know, people are, and you see it even with the vaccine and the people refusing to take the vaccine, which they have every right to do, right? Like I, I would not, I think probably the vaccine, taking getting the vaccine is better than not getting the vaccine. But I certainly understand why people, white and black, don't have any faith that the media that the government and that the pharmaceutical industry in particular are telling them the truth. We're totally running out of time. We're going to have to post the rest of our talk online. Thank you for joining me today, John. John Jeter, who is most often our media critic on the fourth Friday of the month, but he was kind enough to sit in with me today to talk about these national and international issues And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, where we have started to post the shows again. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Everum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-B-E-R-E-M like Mary. The podcast is on all your podcast platforms under On the Ground with Esther Everum. The music we played this hour included Overjoyed by Danila Perez, Another Star by Cedar Walton, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.